Good evening. Welcome to the Ash, our Ash Wednesday service, kicking off the season of Lent. I'm glad that you guys are here. Uh, welcome to whoever's watching on the live stream as well. I wish that you were here as well, but I'm glad that you're watching. Uh, after we're done here tonight, uh, we're going to go downstairs and there will be some snacks and stuff. We can uh, hang out with each other. And also every Wednesday evening during Lent, same thing, we'll uh, get together afterwards downstairs for a bit for some uh, food and fellowship. So if you're new to Ash Wednesday, it's the beginning of Lent. Uh, we're pressing forward. It's the season where we're pressing forward towards uh, the cross, towards Holy Week, and then eventually after that, the goal is resurrection, is, uh, is Easter Sunday. And so traditionally, the church, uh, uh, this is, it's not a sacrament. Nobody's required to do this, wears ashes on, uh, in, in the form of a cross, either on their forehead or on their hand. Confessing, and I'm going to talk about this in the sermon, confessing that we are dead people walking, that we come from dust and to dust we're returning. And uh, of course, that means we need salvation, we need Jesus. And so that's what we're doing tonight. You're more than welcome to participate. Whenever we, whenever we begin, uh, it's just going to be a, a kind of a free-for-all, I think, like it usually is. Is that right? Uh, the, the, we, we, our, our usher is going to lead people out, or are you just going to like? Okay. If, if, if you just want to like come forward and just do it in an orderly fashion. No trampling people. There's plenty of time and there's plenty of ashes. And if you just come, to, come down the middle here and uh, kind of line up and then, I don't know if you want to, when you leave, you want to circle out that way. Um, that would be great too. Okay. Let's go ahead and stand. On Ash Wednesday, the church begins a holy season of prayerful and penitential reflection. Our attention is especially directed to the holy sufferings and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. From ancient times, the season of Lent has been kept as a time of special devotion, self-denial, and humble repentance, born of a faithful heart that dwells confidently on his word. Please pray that our Father in heaven, for the sake of his Son and in the power of his Holy Spirit, might richly bless this Lent season for us so that we may come to Easter with glad hearts and keep that feast in sincerity and truth. Let's pray. O Lord, have mercy. O Christ, have mercy. O Lord, have mercy. Have mercy. O Christ, God the Father in heaven, have mercy. God the Son, Redeemer of the world, have mercy. God the Holy Spirit, have mercy. Be gracious to us. Spare us, good Lord. Be gracious to us. Help us, good Lord. By the mystery of your holy incarnation, by your holy nativity, by your baptism, fasting, and temptation, by your agony and bloody sweat, by your cross and passion, by your precious death and burial, by your glorious resurrection and ascension, and by the coming of the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. Help us, good Lord, in all time of our tribulation, in all time of our prosperity, in the hour of death and in the day of judgment. Help us, good Lord. We poor sinners implore you to hear us, O Lord, to prosper the preaching of your word, to bless our prayer and meditation, to strengthen and preserve us in the true faith, and to give heart to our sorrow and strength to our repentance. We implore you to hear us, good Lord, to draw all to yourself, to bless those who are instructed in the faith, to watch over and console the poor, the sick, the distressed, the lonely, the forsaken, the abandoned, and all who stand in need of our prayers, to give abundant blessing to all works of mercy, and to have mercy on us all. We implore you to hear us, good Lord, to turn our hearts to you, 
to turn the hearts of our enemies, persecutors, and slanderers, and graciously to hear our prayers. We implore you to hear us, good Lord. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, we implore you to hear us. Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, have mercy. Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, have mercy. Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, grant us your peace. O Christ, hear us. O Lord, have mercy. O Christ, have mercy. O Lord, have mercy. Amen. You may be seated. O God, you desire not the death of sinners, but rather that they turn from their wickedness and live. We implore you to have compassion on the frailty of our mortal nature, for we acknowledge that we are dust, and to dust we shall return. Mercifully pardon our sins that we may obtain the promises you've laid up for those who are repentant. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.
from Psalm 51. This is David's psalm that he prayed after he uh, uh, slept with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, and had Uriah murdered, uh, which is a sign that God will forgive any sin. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. The Old Testament reading is from Joel chapter two, verses 12 through 19. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room in the brighter chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priest, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Epistle reading from 2 Corinthians 5 into chapter 6. Paul says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. 
We are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please stand for the gospel reading. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew chapter 6. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's confess our faith with the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please stay standing for the sermon hymn.
to I actually changed course I had uh, uh, been working on a sermon for tonight and then um, had planned the bulletin and everything and then uh, changed my mind on Sunday about what to preach on uh, based upon conversations that we had in um, adult Bible study about the mark of the beast and uh, in case you're wondering like I hope that you don't think of sermons as like me going down into my office and like digging out truth nuggets out of the Bible to come and drop them on uh, those of you who are not as knowledgeable as me. That's hardly ever (laughs) how sermons happen. Almost always it happens in community. It happens as, uh, I'll tell you, I just got, I have so many ideas for what I'm gonna say in my sermons and what I'm gonna preach come out of community group, men's Bible study on Wednesday morning. the conversation that we had in adult Bible, for those of you who were there, the conversation we had in adult Bible study on uh, Sunday morning. And uh, it happens in community. These sermons are not me preaching down to you, but they're conversations that I've been having with you guys and that you've been having with each other and with me. And uh, hopefully, the, I'm carrying it over here in a sort of a, a, a proclamation type way. But I do have to give, and, and I'll mention this, I think, in the... Um, throughout the sermon. I have to give a special credit, well, to everybody who is in adult Bible study, but especially to comments made by Ruth and um, Joe, who's not here tonight. Uh, uh, Meg is, uh, had her baby today. And then um, 
uh, Abby Taylor. And so if, if you were there, you'll kind of know what we were talking about. But we're talking about the, the mark of the beast. Uh, we've been, if, you, if you haven't been here on Sunday mornings, we've been working through Revelation. And last week we talked about Revelation 12 through 14 at the end of chapter 13 is the mark of the beast text. And I, I kind of want you to look at that with me tonight. It's not in the bulletin because, again, it wasn't one of the readings I was going to preach on. Revelation 13, it's in page 917 of your pew Bible, or if you'll look at it with your, on your phone, or if you've got your Bible with you. I'm going to read Revelation chapter 13, verse 16, through chapter 14, 1, and I'd like to talk about what the mark of the beast is and what it means uh, tonight. Carrying forward, for, I, I discussed it briefly in the sermon on Sunday, but, but adding to it, based upon the conversation uh, we had in further reflection that I was doing on this text based on the conversation that led me to want to preach on this. So in Revelation 13, verse 16, the beast also forced everyone. You remember who the beast is? The beast is this conglomeration of these animals in Daniel chapter 7, which are the kingdoms of the world, uh, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Rome. These four all kind of boil down into this one big bad beast in Revelation chapter 13, who is not a literal monster, uh, just so you know, coming up out of the ocean. It's like the beast that came out of the sea in Daniel chapter 7. It's the kingdoms of this world opposed to God and opposed to Christ and opposed to Christ's people. This beast also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast or the beast's name in number form, for it is man's number. His number is 666. Then I looked, and there before me was the lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. I'd like to talk about this text of Scripture for just a little bit tonight. Uh, just kind of a reminder, do some terminology stuff here. Uh, we talked about the beast, who that is. It's uh, in John's day, it's the Roman Empire. It's a veiled a reference to uh, the Roman Empire. And the Roman emperors, probably in John's day, Domitian, insistence that Christians and everybody else in the empire bow down at least once a year and give the emperor worship. And John's insistence that to do so would be to take upon yourself the mark of the beast. The 144,000 is a reference back to Revelation chapter 5, where the 144,000 are God's people everywhere. 12, Israel, times 12, 12 apostles, times 1,000. God's people from all times and all places. That's what's going on here. Now, you'll notice just from the reading that there are two different names. There's Jesus' name. There's the beast's name put on two different groups of people. You got Jesus and his father's name on one group of people, and then you have the beast's name on, the, on another group of people. We can't understand the mark of the beast unless we understand what the mark of the name of the lamb is in chapter 14, verse one, because they're obviously right next to each other. The mark of the beast on the foreheads and on the hands of one people, but then the 144,000 have the mark of the name of the lamb and of his father on their foreheads and on their hands in chapter 14, verse one. Well, in the Bible, what does it mean to say that God has put his name on his people? Just quick references, and then we'll get to the beast part. First of all, Numbers chapter six, verse 22. The Lord spoke to Moses, sent, you guys recognize this, this text. 
The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons, the priests saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the priest were to bless God's people this way by saying, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. God's gonna put his name on the people of Israel with this priestly blessing. Now, what does that mean that God's name is on them? First of all, it's covenant identity. They belong to God. And what better way to say that than to put their name on it? You put your name on the front of your jersey if you're playing for a sports team because your identity is that sports team. You put uh, your kid's name on the inside of their T-shirts. Because why? Because you wanna make sure that everybody, when they go for sleepovers or when they get changed for P.E., or whenever they're throwing their shirts, wherever it is that kids throw their shirts. I've had kids, I know how that works. It will be remembered that this shirt is theirs. It belongs to them. Their name, your family name is upon it. It's their covenant identity. They belong to God. God's people belong to God. More than that though, it's God's presence. This blessing, this name being placed upon them is God's face shining upon them. God's countenance lifted up on them. They are in the presence of God. God is looking at them full-faced. To have God's name on us means that we are in God's presence and we are his people. Fast forward to Revelation 3 where this idea from number six in the ironic blessing gets pulled into Revelation several times. Revelation chapter three, verse 12, in the letter to the church at Philadelphia, Jesus says, through John, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name, Jesus says. God's gonna put, Jesus is gonna put his name, his father's name, and the name of the new Jerusalem on his forehead. Now, what does this mean? It means covenant identity. I, that name, those names on my forehead, I belong to God. I am a citizen of the new Jerusalem. That is now the logo on the front of my jersey. I am a new Jerusalem person. It also means, like the ironic blessing, it also means God's presence. To be a pillar in God's temple, the place where he has chosen to live on earth, means that we are always in his presence. God's name is on us. That means he is with us. Revelation 22, jump into the end of the book of Revelation. Similar language. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. This is in the new creation. Brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Can you see all those strings being pulled in from uh, numbers? You'll see his face. Uh, the Lamb will be living in the middle of you. His name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Again, covenantal identity. These people belong to me and I belong to them, Jesus says, and they are constantly in my presence. They see my face. I live with them. I don't live out there somewhere. I have taken up shop with them. God's presence. The name of Jesus is a sign of our identity. It's a promise of God's presence. If you look back at chapter 14, verse one, it's important that the lamb is standing on Mount Zion. This is where God has chosen to live. Specifically, he's chosen to live in the lamb. And also, it's a sign, new element here, of his self-sacrifice for us. 
because it's the name, it's the sign of the name of the lamb who was slain for us. God puts his name on us to say, I paid the price for this one. I gave up my life for this one. This one belongs to me. I'm gonna live with this one forever and ever. On the other hand, the mark of the beast is also an identity marker, a marker which says this one belongs to me. It's a rejection of the identity of Jesus. It's fake, it's imitative, it's, it's, it's weak, it's evil, it's exploitative. Several points I wanna make about that. Contrast between the mark of the name of the beast, 666, and the mark of the name of Jesus. In chapter 13, verse 16, the first verse that I read tonight, the beast also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead. The beast forces his mark on its recipients. The beast demands that his mark be placed upon them. But the mark of Jesus is a gift. The mark of Jesus is something that he offers to us free, based upon his own payment. The beast forces his mark on us, forcing us to pay. Also, the beast pretends to universal, permanent authority. You'll note throughout chapter 13, and I mentioned some of this stuff on Sunday. Uh, the beast, the two beasts and the dragons form a kind of a fake trinity, a fake upside-down trinity, an evil trinity. The beast is also referred to, uh, we haven't read this yet on Sunday mornings, we're gonna get there in a couple chapters. The beast is referred to as the one who was and is no more, in imitation of Jesus, the one who was and is and always will be. The beast pretends to universal permanent authority, which is why his number is 666, a review from Sunday morning, there's two possible meanings to the number 666. To my mind, that makes sense. Um, and they're not mutually exclusive. One is, is that in Hebrew, um, the number of Nero Caesar's name adds up to 666. I think more importantly, the number 666, as John says here, it's the number of a man. In verse 18, it's a man's number. The number of God, the number of perfection and completeness is seven. 666 is as close to seven as you can get without just adding more and more six digits. But it's a way of saying that the beast is as much of a man as you can get. Full, completely broken, but as powerful as you can get human being. But not quite divine. Wants to be divine. Wants to have the power of God wants to say to God, you are not God and I am, but never can quite make it up there. But like Satan, constantly destroying, constantly tearing down God's image in order to get there. The beast pretends to universal permanent authority, but it's merely human so it can never achieve God's glory. And then finally, the beast has two tools at his disposal. The opposite of the way that God treats us, you'll notice these two tools in verse 17. First of all, exclusion from buying and selling. Um, the beast uh, makes everybody get the mark on the forehead and on the hand so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. We talked about this on Sunday. The cultural system will put economic pressure on followers of Jesus to cave in and submit to it, or you won't be able to participate in the economic system. This was true in the Roman Empire. It was true in Domitian's day. It was true in uh, pre-World War II Germany. If you do not play ball with the beast... If you do not cave in to the demonic powers that stand behind the governmental authorities that oppress the church of Jesus Christ, you won't be permitted to participate in the economic system. The beast always uses this. 
That's his first tool, is he excludes from buying and selling. But what does Jesus do? Jesus includes, but not just to buy and sell, he includes to give. Whereas the beast says, you are excluded unless you take my mark upon me, and you cannot buy and sell unless you have this mark. Jesus says, and I'm quoting Isaiah 55, come everyone who thirst, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Whereas the beast and all the tools that the beast has say, you serve me or I will not let you buy and sell. And all of the beast tools do that. Jesus says, I will serve you, and you don't have to buy and sell because I will give you food and drink without price. The beast demands service, like all of our idols do, like all of our idols of sex, money, and power. They deserve that you serve them if you're gonna be successful. Jesus insists, though, that I will serve you and I will make you successful, no charge. So the first tool the beast has is exclusion. The second tool the beast has, and this is the one that scares us, is death. In chapter 13, verse seven, and I didn't read this, I read this on Sunday, but not tonight. The beast is allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. The beast is allowed to kill saints. Verse 17 says, I'm sorry, verse 10 says, in a kind of a cryptic poem that John puts in here, if anyone's to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he, with the sword he must be slain. A concession to God's people to be prepared, to be taken captive to be prepared to give up your life for the sake of the gospel, knowing that you can't actually lose your life. And that brings us to the beast mark. The beast says, take this mark or I will kill you. Wear this mark on your forehead or you will die. The Christian says, we have the mark of Jesus. You can't kill us, we're already dead. We wear upon our foreheads, most frequently in the sign of our baptism, but tonight in the sign of ash, the sign that we're already dead people. We've been crucified with Christ. The beast can promise to kill us, but he can't really do anything because we're already dead. We have no lives. Our lives are now hidden with Christ and God. We've died to sin. We've died to flesh in our baptisms. And by the power of Jesus' resurrection, we've been raised to new life. You can't take our lives away from us. We don't even have them in the first place. And besides that, even if you do, even if you do kill us, we don't stay dead. We just come back to life someday. It's impossible to kill Christians. Baptism, tonight, ash, we're dead. But since God dies with us, since Jesus died with us on the cross, since we can say we have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless we live, no mark that we could, no mark that we could ever wear could ever come close to the mark that you and I wear right now. The mark of the sign of Jesus Christ's death. Not just on our heads as a sort of an example, but as a sign of our identity as a sign of this is who we are. We are the people that Jesus died for so that our lives and our deaths have been swallowed up in his life and in his death and his resurrection. No one can do anything to you. Nobody can separate you from the love of God. Nobody can conquer you. Exclusion from the economic system cannot defeat you. God gives money and drink without price. Death cannot defeat you. Jesus has risen from the dead and you too will rise from the dead. Amen. Let's pray. Stand with me and we'll pray.
Father, we thank you for being a good God and for loving us. And we thank you most of all tonight for joining yourselves to us in our deaths. We were going to die anyway. It's our own fault. We've rebelled against you. And the wages of sin is death. You told Adam and Eve in the garden that we would die. And so, Father, we confess that we're hopeless without you. Unless you figure out a way to come and fix our deaths, we are dead people walking. And so we praise you tonight for the gift of your son's resurrection, for the gift of your son's death, joining us to his death, and for the gift of his resurrection, guaranteeing us to walk in newness of life. Father, may the sign of your cross on our foreheads in baptism tonight, seen in ash, may it constantly be a reflector, a manifestation of our reality that we are one with your son, Jesus, that we have died with him, that our lives were hidden with him, and that you will raise us up on the last day. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we pray tonight for all those who live in the shadow of the fear of death, for those who mourn the loss of loved ones, for those who are afraid of their own deaths, for those who sense their own mortality, their own deaths approaching. approaching. Father, I pray especially tonight that you would be with Roger Mellencamp, Carol Roar's brother who has just gone on hospice and has just a short time left with us. We thank you for his faith in your son, Jesus. We pray that you would give him and, him and his family, especially Doug and Carol, hope and comfort in the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. May this Ash Wednesday be a reminder that we all die in your son, Jesus, so that we all may be raised in your son, Jesus. Lord, in your mercy. We thank you for being a good God and for loving us, for inviting us into your throne room, for joining us into your son's life, death, and resurrection, which makes us his brothers and sisters and allows us to come into your throne room and pray these prayers to you. And so we pray these prayers in the name of our brother, our Savior, Jesus. Amen. And now taught by our Lord and trusting his promises, we are bold to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. I skipped the offering. If it's okay with the musicians, can we go back and do that? I didn't know if you flipped to, okay, that's my fault. Be seated and we'll have the offering and then we'll close.
the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of us. Amen. Please stand. Store.